Well, in 2010, some researchers in England did a study, and uh, I found an article about it. Uh, It was titled something along the lines of, A Quarter of Parents Avoid Disciplining Their Children Because They Don't Want to Upset Them. Uh, And it begins, One in four parents won't discipline their children for fear of upsetting them. Researchers found that both mothers and fathers shy away from telling off their children because they don't want to be seen as unfair or too strict. More than half, that's 55% of those polled, said that they dished out less discipline than their own parents did. Further down in the article, it says one in four parents openly avoid disciplining their children because they wanted, quote, an easy life. If you're a parent, you can relate to that. More than half the parents felt they were seen more as a friend than a parent and would rather sit down and talk things through than discipline them. But a quarter said they wished they were more strict with their kids because their children were, quote, tearaways. Now, I actually had to look that word up. Uh, That is a British word. To be a tearaway means you are an unruly child who cannot be controlled. The study revealed that the average child is told off at least twice a day, but four in ten parents reckon the lecture falls on deaf ears. Now, I thought it was interesting. I couldn't find any such studies uh, in the United States. I don't know if it is that uh, United States researchers just don't bother because they recognize already that discipline in the family in this country is, is not a popular concept. And yet, as I read that article, I couldn't help but come to the conclusion, as you read it, that, that a parent that doesn't discipline a child doesn't act in the best interest of that child, right? We all know that. We all recognize that setting boundaries on our children, setting expectations for our kids, that's what's best for them, right? So when they transgress those boundaries, there are consequences. And the reason there are consequences is not because you hate the child. The reason there are consequences is because you love the child. And so you want to put long-term health and maturity over short-term Comfort, right? That was the thing that stood out to me as I read that article was how many parents openly said, look, I don't discipline my kids. Why? Because I want it to be easy on me. Discipline is never fun in the moment. Now, as we read throughout the Bible, we get the sense, in fact, we really get a very clear sense that God operates in much the same way toward his people. In fact, as you read through the scripture, it's not a coincidence that the first person of the Trinity is named the Father, right? He relates to us as a father relates to his children. That's intentional. That's not accidental. How does a good father relate to his children? Every good father ideally relates to his own children as God relates to us, right? A father-son relationship in this world ought to be modeled off of our relationship with God the Father. How does he relate to us? Well, first and foremost, he loves us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be like him. God has made us in his image, and sin distorts our ability to represent him, right? And so God then disciplines us as any good father disciplines his children. We're going to talk this morning about the subject of church discipline. And the reason we're talking about it is this. I'm going to guess that there are many in this room who you've gone to church your entire life and have never actually seen a church enforce discipline upon a member. It's really not a popular 
concept. And so most churches don't do it anymore. In fact, last fall, there was a very large church in Dallas that chose to enforce discipline on a member. They removed him from membership. And uh, it was such a big deal that it hit the media. Some of you probably read the stories. And the media was, was asking these questions of what kind of church is this that practices what seems to be an archaic practice, right? Very out of step with the American mindset that really, as long as you are not stealing from me, killing me, taking my stuff, you ought to be able to do whatever you want to do. Right, but that's not consistent with the Scripture. Um, as I looked at the topic of church discipline this week, really what surprised me a little bit was actually how often the New Testament talks about discipline. Right, it wasn't that the New Testament talks about it. It's that there are easily 10 or 12 distinct passages in the New Testament. And they, they're scattered all the way through the New Testament. Jesus talked about it. The Apostle Paul talked about it. The writer of Hebrews talked about it. It's in the other general epistles in the New Testament scattered throughout in James. Church discipline is mentioned again and again and again. And you get the idea as you read the New Testament that God sees it as an essential function of the church. And yet it's a function of the church that is all too often neglected or simply not talked about or not practiced. And yet I came to the conviction this week as I read through the New Testament that any church that wants to be faithful to the Scriptures, that says we are setting our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're making ourselves submissive to God's Word, any church that wants to do that will practice discipline. So we're going to talk about this morning a few of the questions and answers that surround the practice of church discipline. We're going to go through some of the relevant biblical passages and ask a few questions. Because I know some of you, you may be here even for the first time. You may have walked in this morning and you go, what in the world is going on? What are we talking about? Okay, so I want to walk through some of that and say, here's what the New Testament tells us about church discipline, what it is, why we practice it, how we practice it. All right, and here's really, really where we want to land is that, and we're going to see this, the, the foundation and, and the goal of church discipline is actually to display the love of God. All right, and, and the goal ultimately is that every single one of us in this room looks at our hearts and minds and we say, am I headed in a direction where I'm drawing closer to God, where I'm submissive to the Spirit of God? Or do I need to look at my own heart and ask, are there sin patterns in my life that could lead me to a place of distance from God or loss of fellowship with my Savior. Right? But ultimately, God disciplines because he loves. So I want to look at a few questions and answers surrounding the idea of church discipline this morning. First one is this. What is the foundation of church discipline? Right, and I just said a moment ago, the foundation is God's love. That God disciplines because he loves. Look with me at Hebrews 12. It's going to be up here on the screen, verses 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I don't know how many of you who have kids have ever had to enact a grounding upon a child. Uh, We have had to do this a few times with our kids. I actually think groundings are harder than like spankings or other forms of discipline, right? Because groundings require more work and they take longer. And in fact, uh, not long ago, I remember with one of our children, the child was grounded and everything that this kid liked to do was systematically taken away until the behavior changed. No TV, no video games, no sweets, no playing outside with friends, no, nothing. You come home from school, you go to your room, you do your homework, you go to bed. And it was painful, not just for the kid, but for us. It requires a spine, which if I'm honest, I often don't have. It's hard. So why do we do it? Why do we go through that trouble? Because hopefully, We are looking toward the long-term, right? We don't want to sacrifice long-term maturity for short-term comfort. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here about how God disciplines us. No discipline is pleasant in the moment, right? Many of us have had an instance perhaps where we've had a friend or a family member come and say, hey, I see a pattern of sin in your life that needs to change. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes being told that. Right, But the author of Hebrews says that actually people are, are, are one of the ways we're going to see that God uses to discipline us and draw us back into fellowship with him. Why? Because God wants us to be holy, set apart for his purposes. God wants us to be righteous. God made us to know him and reflect him. That's where our best life is going to be found now and for eternity. So because God loves, he disciplines. When any member of the church, including, in fact, pastors and elders, when any member of the church pursues a path unrepentantly that is destructive to themselves and dangerous to the body of Christ, that's when discipline is called for. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But because God loves his people and God loves his church, that's the foundation of discipline. A few years ago, I read a book by a father whose son became addicted to methamphetamines. And it was devastating. Just, just this, this devastating intrusion into their family. And, and the father talks about the painful boundaries he had to set around his son. That there were times he had to say, you cannot come into this house, right? Because your addiction is destroying the dynamic of this family. The boy was stealing money. The boy was creating havoc with his siblings. And so the father set these painful boundaries. In fact, up to, at times, having to call the authorities on his own child. But why? Because he loved his son and he loved his family. And sin was wreaking havoc. God loves his children. He loves his family. When sin threatens it, he moves and acts out of love. Once we understand that the foundation is God's love, then that helps us understand the goals that a church pursues in the process of church discipline. 
I'm going to offer three goals this morning. The first one is this, to preserve the church's purity. One of the most extensive passages in the New Testament about the subject of church discipline is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul addresses the church at Corinth about a, a member of their church who was engaged in incest. He actually says, among you, there's a type of sexual immorality that not even the pagans know. A man has his father's wife and he says, I I wrote to you that you remove this person from among you. All right, and then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and here's what he says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is referring back to the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover. And even to this day, if you have any Jewish friends who celebrate unleavened bread and the Passover, one of the things you know is that before that week of celebration, they go through their house and they remove Everything with leaven, all of the leaven has to be removed, right? The idea is just a little bit will contaminate this holy observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. So Paul uses that illustration here that his readers probably would have been familiar with. He says, one little lump of leaven. It leavens the whole lump of dough. So is sin. God understands that we are community beings, that the way the people around us think and act often becomes the way that we think and act. And sin is a contagious disease. When I was in my 20s and I was an intern here at Grace Bible Church, uh, I came to the office one day with the flu. Um, And the reason that I showed up with the flu was because uh, I didn't want to let something as small as feeling bad keep me from being like an office hero, right? I was going to prove that I had the strength and the ability to muscle through my day with the flu. And so I went into a meeting and our our, uh, pastor over at Anderson, Brian Fisher, he was my boss at the time. He was the college pastor. I walked into this meeting and I was as white as Casper the Ghost. And I was sweating and I was miserable and I was shaking, but I'm taking notes. And about five minutes into the meeting, Brian looks at me and goes, Matt, you look terrible. Go home. I said, no, 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 I'm fine. I'll make it. He goes, I don't care if you're fine. We don't want it. Right? We don't want the flu. So please go home before everybody in the office catches it. Right? That is the concept of preserving the purity of the church. Right? It's not that I was a disease. It's that what I carried was a disease. Sin is deceptive and dangerous and it threatens the purity of God's people. And so what we see biblically when we talk about church discipline is when there is a member who persists persists in unrepentant sin. The scripture says, remove that person to protect the purity of the church. Again, we are community beings. First goal, to protect the church's purity. Secondly, to protect the reputation of of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, as a group of people, as a church called to represent Jesus Christ, what we do with our bodies, what we say with our lips, that affects the reputation of Jesus Christ in this community. And I think if we're honest, the reality is that the reputation of at least Christianity and maybe of Jesus himself has taken a hit in our culture, often because as believers in Jesus Christ, we do not adhere to the standards of holiness for us laid out in Scripture. Right, the reality is we're Grace Bible Church. We certainly preach that eternal life is a free, free, free gift given by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to everybody who trusts in him. Right, but for those who trust in him and then those who belong to a community of faith, we're called to represent Jesus Christ with what we say and do. Right, to fail to do so threatens the reputation of Jesus. But when we are holy, A world that needs to hear him can look on and say, wow, there is power in what they preach. That the Spirit of God can transform people's lives. A few years ago, I read a book. It was called Unchristian. And it was just really a book about the perceptions of our secular culture about Christianity. Right Right or wrong, the book was just, this is what people think about Christians. And there was a whole chapter, and the chapter was called Hypocritical. Right, and all of us have heard that. Right, and right or wrong, there is a reputation out there that Christians say one thing about what is right and do something completely different. In fact, one of the statistics that jumped out to me, he said the, of the people they studied, 84% of young adults said they knew Christians, but only 15% of those people said that the Christians they knew lived any differently from anybody else. Right, and the statistics bore that out. And that often born-again Christians were just as likely to engage in sexual immorality, physical violence, and drug abuse as those who don't claim the name of Jesus. And so Paul says, or Peter, excuse me, says, to protect the name and reputation of Jesus, we pursue discipline when necessary. To preserve the church's purity, to protect Christ's reputation, thirdly, to restore sinners. This is one of the ultimate goals. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. One of the ultimate goals is when, when somebody errs, discipline is meant not to push them away, but to restore them to the body of Christ, to produce repentance, to produce a sense of sorrow. As I read Galatians 6, I couldn't help this week but think about Luke 15, which may be one of my favorite stories Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son. And what always stands out to me about the prodigal son is that you have this son, this younger son who has run away, and he's lived this just dissipate life, right? He has spent all the money probably on immorality. And when he gets to the end of his rope and decides to come back, here's what happens is uh, the father sees him, it says, coming from a distance. And you get this picture 
of a father who is standing like right out at the edge of their property every single day, just looking down the road. Will he come back? Will he come back? Will he come back? And as soon as he sees him way off in the distance, that father grabs up his robe and he runs to greet him. All right, that's the heart of restoration. That's the heart of discipline. All right, God disciplines because he loves. Right, and I believe that any movement toward repentance, God says, yeah, come on, come on. And he grabs that repentant sinner and says, come home. Right, so to preserve the purity of the church, to protect the reputation of Christ, and then thirdly, to restore sinners. All right, so that leads us to my third big question, which is what are the situations that result in church discipline? As I said, you may have walked in for the first time this morning and you go, man, I'm not perfect. When do they do this? Right? What is, what, what is it that, that happens? What is the process? All right, I want, I want to lay that out and then I'm actually going to lay out the process here in a minute so we understand how this plays out. What are the situations that result in church discipline? First one is this. It is for members of the church. Okay, so as you read through 1 Corinthians 5 in particular, Paul actually says, look, I don't have anything to do with judging outsiders. But instead, we are called to enforce standards within the body of Christ. Here at Grace Bible Church, membership is usually that line. There's a membership class going on right now as I'm preaching. You missed it. I don't know if you want to run over there and catch it. But if you are a member of Grace Bible Church, this is actually discussed in the membership class, that we are a church that believes in church discipline. When you become a member, you agree to abide by the authority of the elders of this church who are our governing body. That includes me. That includes all of our pastors. That includes our elders. And in fact, any individual elder is subject to the authority of the elder board. Pastors and elders at this church have undergone church discipline, in fact, in the past, in previous years. If you're a member of the church, you, you are submissive to the authority of the elder board. All right, so what types of things then raise to the level of church discipline? Typically, as you look at the New Testament, it's for unrepentant sin that threatens the church community. All right, now I want to be clear. Our elders are, are never out looking for problems, Enough problems come to them. But typically what happens is something will surface in which there is an unrepentant sin, meaning the person persists in their sin and says, I I won't change. And they dig a groove along this path of sin. And it's a sin that threatens their family, a sin that threatens the church, a sin that threatens the reputation of Christ in the community. The New Testament addresses a a few major categories that I want to walk through this morning. The first one is heretical teaching. Titus chapter 1. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Right? Traditionally, church discipline is enforced for the person who goes out and persists in what you might call teaching heresy. All right, now let me be clear. This is not the person who says, who comes up to me after the service and says, hey, Matt, uh, you talked about a pre-trib rapture, but I'm not so sure. Maybe I'm mid-trib, right? We're not going to call you aside 
and enforce discipline because you have a question about something that's taught up here, or even because you disagree on a matter of secondary importance. All right, what the New Testament addresses are those things that are matters of Christian orthodoxy. So if there is a believer who is teaching that Jesus is not God, or that the Trinity is not real, or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or that he's not coming back and they persist in teaching these heresies around things that the church has always said, these beliefs define us. All right, that would be an instance for church discipline, that type of heretical teaching. Secondly, sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, we've mentioned it. It addresses incest. Right? And I've wondered as I've thought through this, why is sexual immorality addressed as one of these categories? And I think it is because the family is set up in the New Testament. The the marriage relationship is set up in the New Testament as a reflection of the love between Christ and his church. So disloyalty to the marriage covenant or engaging in sexual behavior outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It violates this picture that God intends for his family and then violates the picture of Christ's love and loyalty that he intends for the church. So incest or sex outside of marriage, or homosexual behavior, or adultery. Those are the types of things that the New Testament addresses. And again, to be clear, many in this room, if not most, if not all, have probably failed in their sexual behavior at some point in their life. Right? What the New Testament addresses is the individual who digs in and says, no, I will not turn around. I will not seek help. I will not seek holiness. At that point, we're not talking about a struggle. We're talking about an entrenched rebellion against the standards of God's word. So heretical teaching, sexual immorality. Thirdly, divisiveness. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 to 11 says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Right, again, we're not talking about somebody who just has some questions or somebody who wonders. What we're talking about here is an individual who makes it their practice to gather a group to oppose the authority of the elder board or the authority that God has placed over the church. Right, so we're talking about a person whose desire is to create division or to take over. Right, in the Old Testament, you might think of uh, David's son, Absalom who said, you know what, I don't like David's authority, I'm going to create my own little kingdom. In the body of Christ, there may be people who say, I want to create my own little realm, even if it's just 10 people. Years ago, when I was the college pastor, there was a student in our college ministry who, he disagreed with us on a secondary matter of doctrine. It was something related to the sign gifts or something along those lines. In and of itself, not a major problem. Right, I'm okay with somebody disagreeing with me. There are a lot of instances in which I'm certain I'm probably wrong. But here's what happened is as we talked about it, it became clear that it wasn't just that he disagreed. He was gathering a group within our group and teaching them on a regular basis that I was wrong. That's what Paul means by being factious. And so I told him, I said, look, you don't have to agree with me. You can even disagree with me and stay here. What you can't do is disagree and then gather a crowd to also disagree. So we have factions among us, right? That's divisiveness. And then the fourth category 
that the New Testament addresses is what you might call disorderly conduct. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. All right, in the context, this is a person actually who doesn't work. They freeload off of the congregation for a long period of time. They don't contribute to the life of the congregation. They're just undisciplined and unruly. Okay, again, we're not talking about, oh my goodness, I got laid off last week and they're going to kick me out. We're talking about an intentional pattern of living a disorderly life. So again, back in my college ministry days, there was a student who would float from house to house and live with a variety of different students and he would eat their food and he wouldn't pay rent and he wouldn't contribute. And we talked to him and we said, look, we, we just, we want you to try. Try to get a job. Try to contribute. Because it was creating stress within the group and it was creating division. And he said, I I won't. He had a good thing going. And so he had to be eventually removed from the group. That's what Paul is talking about. So as you look at these, again, uh, this is not a, a situation where it's like, man, I have a struggle in some area and church discipline is quickly enforced. Instead, these are serious ongoing, unrepentant sin patterns. And that leads us then, fourthly, to the process. How does this play out? Jesus gives us the process, actually, in Matthew chapter 18. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And let me break down what Jesus is saying. Here's the process then that Jesus lays out. First of all, go in private. Go in private. My sense is that with many issues, if we went first in private, they would never become an issue that became public. Not all, but many. James chapter 5. He says, look, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So first you go in private. And again, I want to say this, not everything you see needs to be addressed. If you see a mom at the end of a long day and she's tired and she says something unkind to her kids once, this is not go have an intervention. What we're typically talking about are patterns of sin, right? If you see that same mom and you notice that every time you see her, she says unkind, ungodly things about or to her children, right? And there's a pattern. I think we also have to make sure that we have the right relationship with an individual, right? So uh, don't look around this morning and go greet a visitor by confronting them. That's not what we do. But instead we say, look, I'm in your life. Maybe I'm in your home group. Maybe I'm in your family. Maybe we've been friends for years and I see a pattern in your life that concerns me, right? I've had people do this to me in my life, right? To say that there are patterns in your life that concern me, right? And Jesus says, if the person responds, you've, you've won them over. Praise God that it didn't go any further, right? The second step he lays out, you bring a friend or two. Okay, a friend or two. And, and I would exhort all of us as we pursue this, right? Only tell the people who need to know. 
Only tell those people who are part of the solution, who are in that person's life. Bring one friend or two who loves them, who cares for them. And you go together and you say, look, this isn't our opinion. It's not just that we think you're in the wrong. We have observed a pattern of sin that we can hold up against the standard of Scripture to say, this has to change for the sake of your spiritual health and that of the body of Christ. Thirdly, Jesus says, if they won't listen, then you tell the church leadership. You go to the elders. Johnny Stimson is the head of our Creekside elder team. We have three other elders as part of our Creekside elder team. And then there's a broader elder board for all of Grace Bible Church. A person refuses to listen to one friend, to two or three friends. That's when it goes to the elders. And then Jesus says, if they refuse even to listen to them, he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. As you walk through the New Testament, then there are two steps that often happen simultaneously. One is a public rebuke. All right, 1 Timothy 5, Paul says this, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. All right, the idea of a public rebuke is that we all hear and, and we search our own hearts. We say, what path am I on? Am I pursuing Jesus Christ or am I walking away from him? So this public rebuke, and then he says, treat him as a Gentile or tax collector. That is disassociate. Now, I want to explain a little bit of what the idea was behind that, probably in the New Testament. The idea was, uh, you know, a Gentile or a tax collector, it wasn't so much that if you saw them on the street, you would turn and run the other way. Right, it was that they were not a part, particularly in the Jewish community, they were not a part of the worship life of the people of God. Right, they could not enter in and partake fully in the life of worship with the people of God because they were considered unclean, either because they were Gentile or a tax collector. As you look through the New Testament, here's what it seems to be getting at, is that this disassociation means that the individual is no longer to worship with or partake of communion with the people of God gathered together like we are on a Sunday morning. If you know an individual who has undergone church discipline, then again, the idea is not you see him at the grocery store and you run over to another aisle. But instead it is this. What you don't do is simply engage with the person for social reasons, right? Just because uh, I can't imagine living without them or because I think they're lonely. In fact, the loneliness and the sadness of separation from the community is part of what's intended to stir a repentant heart. But instead, as you engage with the individual, if you know the individual and have that relationship with them, you sit down, if you sit down to lunch, and, you, and the purpose is this, that you say, I'm praying for you to repent and to be restored to your walk with Jesus Christ and with the church. And that becomes the nature of all of your engagements with that person until the time at which they are restored to fellowship, God willing, to his church. And that, that, that leads us to where I want to close again this morning, which is, as you can see, the whole process, Jesus knows what he's doing. The whole process is designed to restore those who sin. The whole process is designed to protect the purity of God's people and always for the sake of forgiveness. I thought about how God first revealed himself, God the Father, when he revealed himself to Moses. Remember, and Moses had said, God, I want to see your glory. 
And God says, you know, you can't see my face and live. So I'll let you just see my back. I'll pass by. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a mountain and pass by. And as God passed by, here's what he said. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will be by no means leave the guilty unpunished, right? There's holiness, but where does he start? He says, Moses, I want you to know I am compassionate and gracious. I extend loving kindness and forgiveness to thousands. Many translations say thousands of generations. Always ready to forgive. Always slow to punish. Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's the God we worship and serve. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? This gets at the heart of the gospel itself, that all of us stand condemned before God because of our sin. All of us deserve eternal separation from the presence of God. And yet God intervened in Jesus Christ. Jesus died and he took the penalty for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead All who trust in Jesus can have eternal forgiveness. And then we're called on an ongoing basis to walk with him, to represent him. And through the the power of the Spirit, we have the resources to do that. So that when we sin, God says, I'll draw you close again and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's the heart of our God. He is the God who stands right there at the edge of that road. And he looks and he looks and he looks and he says, I want my children to come back because I love my people. We're gonna close in worship here with a song. And as we do, two things to think about as we leave. First one is this, examine your heart. Examine our hearts this morning. Right, is, is God calling you and me this morning to repent of sin and to return to a close walk with him through his spirit and through Jesus Christ? Are there patterns of sin in my life that need addressing? And then secondly, pray for our church. We are a fledgling campus. We're just two years old, and we need prayer in in so many ways. Everything from the air conditioner to the slides that weren't working an hour ago, all the way to wisdom for our leadership, wisdom for those of us who are pastoring and shepherding, protection from the attacks of the enemy, protection from sin, so that we can be a people who faithfully and truthfully reflect the character of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community and in the world. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your mercy and grace. You are compassionate and gracious and you give your forgiveness to thousands 
of generations. Father, we pray that we would trust your ways and submit to you. We love you, Father. We're grateful for this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.